Spread love, not hate. Spread love, not hate. Spread love, not hate. Spread love, not hate. This is the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening. From CIUT in Toronto, I am David Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. How you doing? And Lauren Latour will be interviewing Robin Tress of the Council of Canadians later in the show about new drilling off the coast, corporate ownership of everything, etc. Stefan wanted to begin this show yet again, God knows why, with a wee little... I was thinking about the crystalline snow that has begun to sparkle all over the streets of Hogtown. And now Stefan, very curiously, feels the need to praise Joe Biden. Any other week, I would say that what I'm thinking about this week is the fact that a bunch of internet folks on Reddit managed to game the stock market to massively boost the stock price of GameStop and thereby basically leading to a hedge fund to lose at least $5 billion. Excuse me? Yeah. But that's a story that will be better covered elsewhere. So instead, today, as we record on Wednesday, is Climate Day, uh, which is, according to the new Biden administration, where they signed a series of executive orders on climate change, which included, one, a commitment to end public subsidies of fossil fuels, and, I think, crucially, using the United States' diplomatic weight to encourage other nations to follow suit, two, buy a vast fleet of zero-emission vehicles, something that he claims will create one million American jobs. Three, specifying climate change as a core part of all foreign policy and national security decisions, which is the first time it's ever happened. And four, announcing the establishment of a civilian climate corps, which is focused on hiring, quote, a new generation of Americans to work on conserving and restoring public lands and waters, increasing reforestation, Increasing the carbon sequestration in the agriculture sector, protecting biodiversity, improving access to recreation, and addressing the changing climate. The UN chief is warning that white supremacy and Nazism is rising worldwide. We know that our civilization will be altered whether we like it or not. It has already changed in ways we can't yet understand because of the pandemic. Our heavy burning of fossil fuels and endless ecological encroachment will force even more transformation in coming years as the Earth continues to change in response to our wreckage. Policies that have freed capital and paved the way for global profit-driven industrialism are increasingly being recognized as having largely served owners rather than workers. Even through this pandemic, the richest 10 people on the globe have gained over half a trillion dollars in personal wealth, which is enough to pay for the vaccines of every person on Earth. Workers' wages fell by a total of $3.7 trillion worldwide in 2020. Global wealth has been flowing more and more into the hands of a small number of cloistered people for decades. The situation is so desperate that Donald Trump looks to millions of people like an anti-establishment candidate, and a good many Americans and Canadians are reading esoteric messages into his remarks for some hint 
of a path forward. The storming of the U.S. Capitol by right-wing conspiracy-addled militants has contributed to more efforts at broadening and tightening police power to crack down on public dissent in general. Republican senators who tried to reverse Biden's victory are now trying to dismiss Trump's impeachment trial, and if the trial fails, Trump will be allowed to run for office again, possibly after four years of various Stephen Millers spitting racist poison on Fox News, or whatever patsy media arm might amplify the voice of white authoritarian violence. The Pentagon itself helped the insurrectionists by delaying the deployment of the National Guard. If the climate crisis is allowed to get worse, it's not hard to imagine ethno-fascism anxiously taking hold of various patches of fertile land. Or if serious environmental efforts are not combined with major economic restructuring that reallocates resources directly to regular people or guarantees them dignified jobs, it isn't hard to imagine widespread resentment gaining greater traction and leading to either the failure of those environmental efforts or the establishment of authoritarian regimes in our gloriously free Western countries. Climate change is an urgent matter, and there are many inspiring groups doing important work. But the environmental movement needs to recognize that a system and an outlook that treats people like things will always use the natural world the same way. Many black people in the U.S. are still being treated like slaves in a system of highly profitable prison labor. Indigenous people in Canada make up 5% of our total population, but 30% of our prison population, as we continue to systematically impoverish and steal from their communities, largely through resource extraction and fossil fuel infrastructure. An interracial, class-conscious environmental coalition that is willing to question the structure of our economy without holding on to self-righteous dogmatism could change our society non-violently. Religion and spirituality should not be counted out just because we need scientists to inform us of the material technicalities of change. Focusing too much on science and theory saps our individual power as conscious human beings, which is inherently within us at all times, regardless of what anyone else might say. It's true that the humanities, which includes the study of the spirit, are a dissident force by their very nature, since they turn our attention to the wealth and worth of human subjectivity in general, and as it's expressed in each person, thereby strengthening democratic resolve and counteracting the machinery of the system that is asking us to participate in ecological destruction and widespread dehumanization. I think the concerns you lay out here 
are exactly why I'm so specifically excited about the climate core at, that is a part of the Biden plan. To Biden's credit, he invited the Sunrise Movement as well as left-wing politicians to help him create this plan, and to their credit, that is why it is actually good. Uh, and the ability to frame tackling climate change, especially for young people, as a job creator and a good job creator at that, at a time when so many are left out of work, creates the opportunity for a generational shift. It allows for folks to see themselves as part of the fight and identify with the work that must be done while actually earning a decent living from it while doing so. And as we've said in the show previously, you know, this is exactly what uh, the opportunity that the Trudeau government here is missing with their plan that focuses so strongly on a price of carbon. Don't get me wrong, a price on carbon is a great tool, but without these other pieces, it's just not going to create that opportunity for people to see themselves as part of the effort. And one can only hope that we will see significantly more ambition uh, out of Canada with this new tune from our largest trading partner. That said, there's still an incredible amount of work to be done, especially in terms of ensuring that Americans in the next two years experience this in a way that helps them helps them see actual, true real difference in their lives and real help. You know, we've heard rumblings of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which would be a great step, you know, as will passing another COVID stimulus with direct payments. But the issue is that the Republicans, including the quote unquote good ones like Romney and Murkowski, Collins, you know, have already begun to sandbag the process. And the most conservative Democrats have basically already ruled out killing the filibuster, which will mean that you would need 60 votes to pass most legislation, which basically gives a veto power to McConnell. And so the battle is in no way won, but I think at least there's some hope here uh, for progress. And this is a band called Pottery with a song called Hot Heater. Their album is called Welcome to Bobby's Motel.
Now we're going to look uh, briefly at some ideas for environmentally conscious economic actions, as articulated by various authors writing for The Ecologist. Namely, Yorgos Kallas, Susan Paulson, Giacomo Delisa, Federico De Maria, Ricardo Mastini, Aaron Vansengen, and Jamie Tyberg. We will link the articles on our website after we post this show. But the ideas are these. Our society needs to be slowed down by design, because it is causing ecological disaster, and it has overextended itself economically and become brittle, as proven by this second major crisis in 12 years. Even with all the technological and material abundance we have created, we're not providing each other with the basic means of survival. We should therefore focus on creating the things we need to live, and wind down the industries that use up resources on non-essential goods. We need caps on wealth and income, and taxes on pollution and resource use. One of the reasons we're currently tied to constant growth is that private banks create money when they hand out a loan, which becomes private debt, and the system breaks down if enough of the debts cannot be repaid, and public money has to step in to save the day. If our economy continues to grow in the right way, theoretically, these debts are repaid with interest, and the banks are fine. We can instead have the central bank create money for planned collective investment in things that we actually need, which keeps all the debt in the same place, and allows a society to grow at a pace it collectively deems necessary. This would help us pay for something as ambitious as universal basic services and public abundance, since it would allow us to move money away from spending so much effort on useless and or harmful jobs, and greatly expand jobs where we're actually helping each other. This is a de-emphasis on growth and a focusing on basic needs. If this seems like too much centralized power, we might want to accept that eliminating employers could lead to a similar result, since instead of people starting businesses to do whatever turns a profit, we would have free individuals engaging with each other on equal footing to do what is democratically deemed necessary. In any case, degrowth can also be seen as an anti-colonial project, since our tumescent expansion on lands we stole is itself our colonial legacy. Degrowth is an area that gets really quite technical and intricate quite quickly. And so I really encourage folks to check out the links that will be posted on the website to dive into this a little more and consider these options. One thing I will say, however, is is that as it stands right now, it's abundantly clear that our current system for assigning resources is fatally flawed. The stock market, which you know, originally was set up to allow businesses to raise capital, has ballooned into what can only be seen as a casino, to the point where you now have a series of financial instruments that serve no real-world purpose except to extract money from the system. You know, these come in different measures, some more akin to gambling. As I mentioned earlier, you know, this week's antics with Melvin Capital and GameStop have proved. And others are merely finding weaknesses in the system, such as traders who aim to use 
uh, aim to move, sorry, as close as possible to the stock market servers and set up the fastest possible connections to allow for, for what is called high-frequency trading, where they purchase stocks just before other investors, which, according to financial journalist and author Michael Lewis, has transformed the U.S. stock market from, quote, the world's most public, most democratic financial market into a, quote, rigged market. And so, while well, imagine a lot of the, you know, concepts that Davis mentioned in regards to degrowth seem radical. If you suggested what we have now to someone who's doing almost anything else, it would seem perhaps not just radical, but bizarre and completely not thought out. Farmers in India are still camped out with their tractors, protesting Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi's law that would deregulate the market and, the farmers argue, cause many of them to starve. The farmers' unions recently rejected a government proposal to delay the policy for 18 months and are still protesting it to get it completely repealed. Half of India's population is employed by agriculture, and there are 150 million landowning farmers in the country. The farmers have been camped outside New Delhi for close to two months now and show no signs of slowing down. Some of them recently breached a barricade during a military parade and laid siege to the historic Red Fort. One farmer was killed in the incident, and 86 police have so far been injured. Protest leaders have distanced themselves from the siege. A report out of Washington State is showing that several species of salmon there are on the brink of extinction. We can recall here the devastatingly low number of salmon that returned this year in British Columbia. The state of North Dakota has rejected a bill that would have held oil companies responsible for abandoning wells or cleaning up spills, meaning the public will have to continue to pay to clean up after the oil industry there. Shale gas production in Pennsylvania has returned to pre-pandemic levels since November. I mostly wanted to highlight this story because of the wonderful phrase used by Mr. Bill Holland in the S&P Global website's market intelligence section, reading, quote, Pennsylvania's shale gas production returned to pre-crisis levels in November 2020 as the state's largest producers opened the valves to let the gas flow freely into a subdued winter market. Joe Biden has recently suspended oil and gas leasing on public lands, is bringing back a Council of Science Advisors to the White House, is planning to create a White House Council on Environmental Justice, has set up a goal to protect 30% of federal land by, and water by 2030, and is giving money to non-white communities to help deal with pollution and climate change. Yeah, so I hope that the Biden administration efforts to remove the supports for oil and gas infrastructure are extended into working to try to hold them responsible for the cleaning up after themselves. You know, we've seen the Canadian governments pull back from these, both with the Kenny, uh, with Jason Kenny undoing regulations he inherited from the Notley government, and Trudeau throwing millions into the hands of oil companies on this issue at the beginning of the pandemic. And it continues to stand out to me as one of the most blatant examples of privatizing profits and publicizing costs. And I think also, uh, before we go to break, also very important to continue paying attention to this ongoing strike in India. And I sincerely hope that those protesting can expect support from all nations who purport to care about human well-being and climate change. 
And to be honest, I hope that many of us in the West can see the success that is being garnered in their fight as proof that demanding what you actually want works. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Welcome back, Green Majority listeners. I'm Lauren, sitting here with Robin Tress of Council of Canadians. Robin, you are the uh, climate and social justice campaigner out on the East Coast, are you not? I am. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We're chatting with Robin today about the uh, recent offshore drilling projects that were announced by uh, Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson last week. So we're going to try to get a little bit of information about those, hear how they've been received, what they sort of mean for the province. So uh, so yeah, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so I guess just to jump right into it, uh, can you tell us about these, I think there was three three different projects that were announced last week, but can you can you give our listeners a little bit of information on those? Yeah, sure. There's three projects, three exploratory drilling projects that were approved last week. One's called Orphan Pass, or it's in the Orphan Pass offshore in Newfoundland, and that's by a company called BHP Petroleum. There's a second one called Central Ridge, and that's by Equinor. You might know Equinor better as Statoil, which is a Norwegian company. And um, there's another one in the West Flemish, West Flemish Pass, and that's a project by Chevron. So all of these projects are exploratory drilling. That means they're not going to be extracting oil for production, but they're going to be drilling holes to see if there's oil there. Um, but that doesn't mean it's any less dangerous. Offshore drilling, exploration, um, the really dangerous parts of that where spills can occur quite easily or most frequently. Um, that happens when the equipment's moving around, when the holes are being drilled, when new stuff is being deployed. And so um, we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that these projects are any less risky than an extraction project. Um, yeah, so there's those three projects that were um, approved and their licenses to explore continue on until 2030, but we never really know how long um, each company will continue exploring. It depends on what they find and uh, also how well our movement's organized for a just transition for workers. I know this is, this might kind of be out of left field, but I am just wondering how long does exploration usually last for a project like this? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if there's a usually, but I can say from, uh, so I live in Nova Scotia in Halifax and we had BP unfortunately drilling here, uh, doing some exploration offshore and they drilled, they had a rig here for about two or three months to drill one hole. Uh, I could say a lot more about that later. Um, but yeah, maybe it could be as short as that. It could be as long as several years, depending on how many holes, uh, how many wells they do end up drilling. Uh, yeah, it's not really a usually for that one. Right. Okay. So they could very well end up 
drilling right up until that 2030 date. So in, um, in a press, it's bad. I don't know if it was a release or a conference, but Wilkinson has been quoted as saying that, uh, the drilling projects aren't likely to cause significant adverse environmental effects and that he had established a list of conditions for each project that companies would have to sort of follow in order to be implemented and continue and, and to like keep their approval. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on that statement. Yeah. So every time something, any project of any kind is approved um, under an environmental assessment, it comes with conditions. And a lot of those conditions are very standard. <laughs> They're things like um, consulting with the public on big changes to the project, reporting on how their activities are going just so the government can kind of keep up. Um, I took a peek at these specific conditions. They say things like don't intentionally dump drilling fluid into the middle of the ocean, or maybe have some consideration of sensitive sea life like whales and corals and things like that. So the conditions aren't terribly strenuous from my perspective, but the really concerning thing that I wanna raise is that the idea that this is unlikely to be risky or unlikely to cause harm, um, when BP was in Nova Scotia, we looked into what that means. What, how does the government quantify those risks and what kind of information do they use to decide that it's not very risky? And it turns out we called on an, an expert risk analysis named Dr. Robert Bia to look at specifically the project that BP was doing in Nova Scotia, but I am willing to extend this same concern to other projects. He said that the, the information that the company provided to the government in order for them to make that statement that it's unlikely to cause risk. He said with his expertise as a risk analyst, it's not actually possible to determine whether or not the project would be risky based on the information that's typically given through an environmental assessment uh, for offshore drilling. So that's a huge concern. And so um, again, when, when BP was exploring in 2018 in Nova Scotia, they had that same, uh, that same approval and those same types of conditions and the same assessment that it's unlikely to cause harm. But just two months after BP was approved, they actually spilled 136 liters of toxic drilling fluid all over the bottom of the ocean. And then we're never required to pick it up. And you know, they said the same about Shell when they were drilling offshore Nova Scotia and then Shell dropped two kilometers of a giant pipe into the ocean and it landed like maybe eight meters away from their wellhead. <laughs> so they almost broke their own wellhead by dropping this pipe into the ocean. But that project was assumed not to be risky or to, unlikely to cause harm. They said the same about the Husky Ceros and the same about Hibernia when they both had major spills in 2018. 20, uh, sorry, that was, those were in 2019. So I just, uh, I would take it with a big old grain of salt that these projects are unlikely to cause harm. Um, another thing to consider in that risk assessment is that they're not looking at the downstream emissions associated with these projects. So they do take a look at the emissions associated with actually operating um, an offshore rig, but they don't look at what happens when the oil they pull out of the ground is burned. That's called downstream emissions, what people call it scope three now, um, but they don't look at that at all. And I think that's the biggest risk of all where we are so close to blowing the carbon budget. There is so much oil offshore, Nova, or offshore Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, like that climate risk is just not being considered whatsoever. So like su suffice it to say that like, yeah, their risk assessment metrics are 
severely lacking. So yeah, they're not operating in the public interest. Something that we've really learned through a couple of years of of really looking at offshore drilling and the regulatory frameworks around it. There are these bodies called, so there's one in Nova Scotia and one in Newfoundland. They're kind of unique. It's the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board. And these are these joint agencies between the provincial and federal government um, that regulate offshore drilling. Um, And these boards are just notoriously tilted in favor of industry and not in favor of the public interest. So my experience is primarily in Nova Scotia, working with the Nova Scotia side of that board or the Nova Scotia version of that board. And I can say confidently, like our experience of consultation with the Offshore Petroleum Board is a joke. It, there's not information available to the public so that we can make real um, judgments about whether or not offshore drilling is in our interest. And any information we do get comes directly from the proponent, like the company trying to do the drilling. There's no real opportunity to have input and there's no clear path to influencing outcomes. Um, There's no resources made available for people, for the public to participate in that decision-making. It's just so clear from the outset that these petroleum boards exist to ensure that drilling occurs and sure, they do a little bit of regulatory work and they make sure that the worst outcomes aren't happening. There's a little, there's some, you know, there's worker safety and some environmental safety work happening there, but they're not asking these bigger questions like, is this really what we need for our economy? Is this the best road that's going to provide a good life for people either in Nova Scotia or Newfoundland and Labrador? Is this safe for the climate? There's, there's none of those larger questions uh, or opportunities for input. So yeah, it's per- it's a pretty unfortunate situation. Yeah, very much lacking that like holistic, uh, I don't know, evaluation of the situation. But um, before I ask you, I'm going to ask you quickly about sort of the consultation process that was conducted, if any. But I just want to circle back. You'd mentioned that one of the previous drilling projects, I don't think it was the Shell one. I think it was the one you'd mentioned previous. They weren't required to clean up their spill. Oh yeah, that's happened a few times. Um, So it was BP in Nova Scotia. In 2018, they were approved to um, drill some test wells. It was actually the day after the climate emergency was declared. The government then uh, approved them to drill for or explore for more oil. (laughs) Two months later, they had a big spill of this synthetic drilling fluid. So it wasn't oil. It was like a fluid they used to help drill the holes or drill the wells in the ocean. And it was so deep, like it's, it was an ultra deep well. It's so deep that the, the result of the investigation just said that it's there and they decided that it was inert and that it would have no effect. So they would just leave it. I mean, the same happened with Shell, like Shell dropped this huge piece of a pipe that was supposed to go from the drilling boat to the floor of the ocean. They dropped it off the boat and then they just got to leave it there. And I looked into it. There was another similar spill like the one BP had, um, but it was much earlier around 20, 2003 or 2005, maybe. Um, it's a while ago, I'm fuzzy on the details, but similarly they dropped, they had a spill of uh, synthetic drilling fluid and we're all, you know, the investigation by the offshore petroleum board said, it'll be hard to clean up. So don't. 
I like, I wish I wasn't surprised and shocked, but I am. And it's just all the more gobsmacking when you consider that, like, while this is happening, while there are these spills happening, you also have, uh, assuming different regions, but like also in the Atlantic region, you have like a lot of um, different, like, marine protected areas under various level of like evaluation and um, implementation. So it's like on one hand, you've got this one tiny little patch of ocean that they're saying is going to be protected. And then right next to it, deep water drilling happening and cleanup isn't required. So it's, I don't know, it's just this weird sort of cognitive dissonance that, that the minister of environment seems to hold when he's taking into consideration these different projects. And it baffles. Yeah, and I think that cognitive dissonance is called corporate capture, <laughs> where the interests of corporations have totally, I mean, to use the same word again, that captured the uh, regulatory bodies that are supposed to be working in the public interest, but now actually just working completely, almost entirely in the corporate interest. So, you know, it's in, it's in BP's interest to not have to pay and go and clean up what they spilled. It's in Shell's interest to not have to go and uh, pick up that pipe from the bottom of the ocean. It's in you know, it's in all of their interests to just, you know, pay a little fine and move on without making any major changes to the way they operate. Um, it's in the interest of corporations and the people the, who carries the burden of that. It's people and it's the environment that we all rely on to live. Um, so, yeah, I call that corporate capture. And I think it's one of the core issues that keeps us from being able to make real strides on climate action and also real strides on transforming our economy so that it can really provide for real people and not just the CEOs of these mega polluting, mega big corporations. No, that was really well said. I feel like my using the word cognitive dissonance or phrase cognitive dissonance has like an air of passivity about it. Whereas yeah, corporate capture, it's like, no, these are intentional decisions being made. Very much. Yeah. They're active processes that the government continues to um, partake in. Like recently I was just reading, I was a bit surprised in preparing for this conversation. I learned that Newfoundland and Labrador recently had a new policy. I'm just looking at my notes to see if I can find the name of it. It's a, um, yeah, there's a new program called the Offshore Exploration Initiative in Newfoundland and Labrador that allows corporations um, in the future so every time a corporation wants to do a big drilling project or an exploration project, they pay a deposit. And um, what the new program, this, off this offshore exploration initiative in Newfoundland Labrador says is that future deposits can be reused. So if, the pro if someone goes ahead, a corporation comes and they do an exploration project, they don't find, they don't like what they find, they can apply to do a new exploration venture and kind of reuse their deposit which saves the corporations money, but it makes it even more expensive for the public because we're reducing public income or public uh, revenue. Um, and we're carrying more burdens, like there's just more and more risk associated. And so it's really downloading costs from the corporation to the public. Um, and so it's these, it's these things that, you know, they, they just show us over and over again that the interests of the corporations is what the governments are prioritizing with all of their policy around climate and energy. Absolutely. And these are tiny little policies that no one ever hears of, right? Like that's like, that isn't part of 
like the federal climate plan. It's like not like even even organizations that are closely paying attention to stuff like this, like can't possibly inventory all of these tiny little policy decisions that are made across the country. Um, well, uh, that was disheartening. Um, anyway, sort of on that policy note, um, what does uh, like obviously like a federal just transition act is very much stalled at the federal level, but is there any sort of move to implement any sort of just transition plan at the uh, either like regional or provincial level on the coast? Yeah, I think there's different words used. We might not say the words just transition uh, quite so much, but there's quite a lot of talk happening right now in Newfoundland Labrador about how to recover having an economic recovery because the province does have kind of a double whammy going on where they were before the pandemic, they were facing some pretty hard times. Um, I don't want to blame it all on Muskrat Falls, but there was a Muskrat Falls was a really expensive, big, bad idea that the province took on and incurred a ton of debt. And so there's a huge debt problem already before the pandemic. And now, um, with the price of oil having dipped last year and and, um, the economy of Newfoundland and Labrador being so wrapped up in oil and gas, there's facing some really hard times and some really hard decisions need to be made about how that economic recovery will go. Um, And unfortunately, that economic recovery is being led by a group called the Premier's Economic Recovery Team. The short form is PERT, it's not a great acronym. but this team is made up of, uh, it's headed up by someone named Moya Green, who has a history of um, being in favor of <laughs> privatization and, uh, inter- you know, um, her history is working with Canada Post to um, make that a less robust public service. And then after that, she went and worked with um, the British Post. Similarly, much less robust public service after she's gone. So she's heading up this team and there are a number of members of the team who are, you know, a little bit diverse, but kind of the regular people you would expect to be on an economic recovery team of that kind. And it's super secretive. Um, You know, I can read between the lines and tell that it's going to, you know, I I can expect (laughs) that they're going to come out with some kind of austerity agenda. Um, as an economic recovery plan for Newfoundland Labrador, which is totally insufficient. Um, But we don't actually know that yet because everyone who joined that team had to sign non-disclosure agreements. Um, So there's no public consultation, no public engagement whatsoever uh, in this PERT, this team. And, um, you know, I think there's some bilateral meetings happening, some, some, uh, you know, meetings with different groups in the province and beyond, but, I feel pretty sure that when they come out with their draft report at the end of February and then their uh, final report in May, this economic recovery team is going to come out with a pretty hard um, uh, austerity agenda, which is not what people generally want or need in Newfoundland Labrador. (laughs) So um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how social movements respond um, to that. There's also a provincial election coming up in about three weeks. So we'll see, there's some big changes coming for Newfoundland Labrador, but I think in terms of just recovery or just, um, transition for workers and thinking specifically about workers in the offshore industry, um, 
Interestingly, we, well, we saw a new report come out this week from our friends at Environmental Defense, and it's, I uh, can't remember the title, maybe I can pull it up while I'm talking, but um, it's basically a report that shows that delaying just transition planning for workers is really a bad idea for workers because we know that the transition is happening now. It's not, it's not a thing of the future. Oil and gas jobs across the country have been, have been on a downward trend since about 2014. And a lot of that is due to the automation that's happening in the industry. So people are already losing jobs in this industry, left, right, and center. And um, it's only going to continue as we start uh, global economies and our own start taking climate action really seriously. And so it's really, it's only, it's in the worst interest of workers to not do that planning now. And so what I hope for Newfoundland Labrador is that that conversation can start soon um, so that we can plan now. I don't want to kick, I don't want to see this can kicked down the road because if, if the economic recovery of Newfoundland Labrador is centered on the offshore, um, like maybe that'll be okay for producing a buck for a couple of years, but really we'll just be in this same situation in a few years, finding ourselves looking um, to diversify the economy. And so we, we really should do it now um, while we have a little bit of time um, and before the carbon budget is totally blown. So that's what I would love to see coming out of any kind of economic recovery for Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, we're, we're doing a bit of work with our membership, with the Council of Canadians membership in Newfoundland and Labrador to start envisioning what exactly it is that transition needs to look like for real people uh, who live there. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that report you were referencing is uh, it, like, it literally just came out on like Monday. I think it's the steady path, how a transition to a fossil free Canada is in reach for workers in their communities. Um, yeah. One really interesting thing I didn't know, I read that report and I learned that the majority of workers in the, offer, or in the oil and gas industry in general are slated to retire in the next 20 years anyway, based on just like the age demographics of people working in that industry. And so it's not actually as hard as we might have initially thought, or maybe how industry thinks, tells us <laughs> how hard it will be to transition workers because, because so many people are moving towards the end of their career. Yeah, they'll just naturally age out of it. And so we'll have some natural aging out, like you said, and then that leaves us a little bit more opportunity to focus on people who are not going to age out in that time frame and support them in finding other meaningful work that can provide a good life um, without expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. So, yeah. Not all is lost. Not everything. Not all is lost. Amazing. (laughs) Um, Circling back really quickly to that sort of economic recovery team that you'd been referencing. That's not sort of the first step in, in, Newfoundland and Labrador's economic recovery. Back in the fall, we were talking about just before we hit record, there was something like, what, $320 million that was, um, I I don't want to say given, because I'm sure that's not the right economic term, but like basically transferred to um, Newfoundland for for purposes of recovery, right? Yes, the federal government allocated. (laughs) That's what it is. Thank you. Allocated. Million dollars to the province to... uh, you know, to weather the storm. And uh, it's, you know, that's not inherently terrible. That money could have been used in a lot of creative ways to start supporting um, just transition planning and support direct support for workers who are put out of work because of the pandemic and oil prices and all of it. 
But instead, what, the, what we've seen the province do with that money so far, um, so the money was transferred to the provincial government and then the provincial government gave $41.5 million to the West White Rose project, which is a newer, <laughs> a newer fossil fuel project um, in Newfoundland Labrador, just to keep the lights on basically. And I'm sure that employees of that company did receive, you know, they continued to get paychecks as a result of that. But I just don't think that handing money to corporations is a good plan if what you want to do is support workers, which is what we really should be doing first and foremost. Um, yeah, it's not a great plan. And then additionally, so that was 41 million to West White Rose. And then they also gave 38 million to the Hibernia project, which is a huge, huge offshore drilling operation. Um, and again, like we just don't really believe that that money is going to trickle down <laughs> from the head of these massive corporations to the workers who need to put food on the table. And so I just don't, I think that was some unwise, you know, that's, that's what the liberal government at this point is doing to say, we're, we're protecting jobs in the economy or whatever they say, we're investing in the economy and the environment by handing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to some of the biggest, baddest polluting companies on earth. Like it just doesn't make sense. So, um, it would be much more wise, I think, to be creating publicly administered programs that really support workers in, uh, you know, filling gaps in this really nasty time we're in right now, planning for a future, investing in a diversified economy that's not so reliant on um, the boom and bust <laughs> system that is oil and gas, um, you know, worker retraining, all of these things. Uh, imagine what we could do with $320 million uh, in direct support for workers trying to find their next thing. Like it would be, uh, that would be a lot better than handing it straight over to colossal fossils. Yeah, uh, no, like exactly. Like you said, it just doesn't seem like it's a, it's an intelligent move to make either from an environmental standpoint or from an economic standpoint. If if the whole point of the, of the economy is actually to like support everyday people and their livelihood, then then these moves just don't make sense. I think what one thing that's been revealed through this whole pandemic experience and, you know, a careful look at neoliberal policy in the last 40 years is that that's not the purpose of the economy today. The way that our economy is structured now is not actually to support regular people and having decent lives. It's to enrich corporations and their leadership. Uh, and it's quite good at that, honestly. Uh, we've all seen a number of the world's richest people have become even more rich through this pandemic while so many people are struggling to keep their jobs, keep their homes, put food on the table, you know, maintain social connection, all these things. Like there's so many, there's so many examples this year, especially, or this past year of how the economy is not working for people. And so, yeah, I think if you're, if you're a government whose interests are aligned with people, you wouldn't do that. And if you're in a government whose interests are aligned with enriching corporate friends of yours, um, maybe in hopes that you'll become a corporate friend of the government in the future, then, then that's the kind of stuff that you do. But if you, you know, if we want governments and people who, if, you know, if we want an economy that really works for people, we've got to do something drastically different um, than what we're doing right now. Well, it's a good thing there's an election coming up because then we can we can vote 
in no i i don't want to joke about an election it's not fun to joke about that <laughs> no it's not <laughs> moving on in the conversation um one of the last couple of questions i have is uh looking back at those initial sort of three projects that we started off the conversation with how was the announcement of those projects last week received by folks in the atlantic region um i mean i think there was a huge mix i think that folks who are aligned with a climate justice vision or an economic justice vision might not have been so thrilled. Um, I myself obviously am not super thrilled to see continued exploration in the middle of a climate crisis. Um, I think other people were excited that it would provide some economic opportunity back to the region. Um, it's been a bit hurting, but I think uh, to me that just reveals a need, a desperate need for a better vision of what the future of Newfoundland, Labrador and the whole Atlantic region can be. Um, because I think we've just been fed austerity budget after austerity budget. <laughs> and we've been told to be grateful for what we have and not ask for anymore. And it's, that's a hard pill to swallow at this point where so many people are suffering and yet these corporations get handed, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, it's just hard to believe that somehow there's money for Husky and for Chevron, but there's not money so that people can eat and get their pills. Like I, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. So um, forgive the mixed metaphors there, but yeah, to me, this just demonstrates the need for a new, a real, uh, a much better vision for what our future can be like. And I think we have to create that vision together because uh, no one else is really able to do it for us. And if people do want to work on creating that vision and do want to engage um, either directly on these issues or issues kind of surrounding it, um, how can people get involved? How can people tap in? What a great question. Uh, well, speaking for myself, I'm working at the Council of Canadians and we're trying to work with folks in Newfoundland, Labrador, um, folks we already know and maybe haven't met yet too, to uh, start imagining what that could look like. Um, and building some better ideas for how the future can go. So I encourage anyone who's interested in that to go to Canadians with an S.org and find our offshore uh, energy and climate page. There's a lot of information on uh, offshore drilling there and you can sign up and we'll keep in touch with you and figure out this thing together. I love that. Thanks for, thanks for that info. Um, last thing, how can people find you if they want to... They want to, if they want to hear more from you, if they want to hear what Robin Tress has to say on the daily. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not really one for daily. I don't really do Twitter speed of things. Um, honestly, I would send you back to canadians.org again. I write a ton of blogs there, which is really cool. Um, or you can find us at canadians.org on Twitter. Uh, I do tweet sometimes, but it's not my fortune. <laughs> I love that. I love a long form blog more time to dig into the issues in a nuanced Yeah, it's like, way. it's fun to go on Twitter and like be a bit snippy about how nasty things are, but I do find it a little more helpful to like take a minute and then write it out. Definitely, definitely. No shade on anyone who likes Twitter. Oh, no, but like as somebody who <laughs> used, I used to blog and then I stopped blogging and now I exclusively spend my waking hours on Twitter and it has definitely um, reduced my analytical abilities, if that makes sense. I kind of only know how to be pithy now. I don't know how to actually. 
I put mean, out anything of substance. It takes all kinds. Um, <laughs> I find like the impending climate doom and ongoing climate crisis causes like quite enough anxiety in my life. So I just don't add the Twitter anxiety onto that. <laughs> And you know what? Good advice. Good advice for our listeners. Don't add Twitter anxiety <laughs> onto your existential dread. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. The interview went a little bit longer than I told you it would. So, so thanks for sitting down with me for a few extra minutes. Uh, this has been Robin Tress with Council of Canadians. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.